This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's up, guys? We're going to do this podcast. My name is Salman Ali, at Salman Ali NBA on Twitter. Here, joined by Ben DuBose. How you doing, man? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing all right. It's been a while since we talked. Yeah, I think since game six, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we've all needed a nice little recharge over the last couple of weeks. Absolutely, absolutely. So leaving the Toyota Center after game six, you just got that feeling that there would be significant change. And I talked about this on a podcast a couple of weeks ago, like... I'm not sure if this loss was more catastrophic than last year, but it just it definitely felt more deflating. Because last year you could always point to Chris Paul's hamstring and say what if. And this year your roster was healthy, Kevin Durant was out and you were on your home floor. So there's there's nothing you can say other than you just lost to a better team. Lo and behold, the Rockets have now let go of, of assistant coaches Jeff Bizdelic, Roy Rogers, Irv Roland, and Mitch Vanya. They've essentially gutted their coaching staff to a few players, Mike D'Antoni, Brett Gunning, Matt Brace, and John Lucas. I don't think either of this saw this kind of change coming. Did you? Not with Mike D'Antoni staying in place. You know, once the season ended, let me be clear. I never thought that Mike D'Antoni remotely deserved to lose his job. He's done an exemplary work over his three seasons in Houston. That said, you really hit the key theme, which is that a year ago, you could see a case for, as they said, running it back. You won 65 games. You were basically a hamstring away. You got to game seven. Whereas this year, it's just pretty clear. There's no ifs. You just weren't good enough. Now, they were close. Of course, that series was very competitive. But in a lot of metrics, not just that series, obviously the regular season, they slipped to 53 wins. And what I wondered leaving game six, is this one of those weird points like Toronto with Dwayne Casey a year ago where they consider something drastic as far as the coaching staff? Not saying that it's Mike's fault, not saying that I would have done it if I were in charge. It's just one of those weird spots that a franchise can get to. Now, we have learned since then, you know, Tillman Fertitta has come out and said that Daryl will be the coach or that Mike D'Antoni will be the coach, excuse me, getting ahead of myself, Daryl Morey and Mike D'Antoni sat down for the exit interview together. So all the signs have been positive as far as Mike D'Antoni. And, of course, we'll see if they get a an extension nailed down. But what's fascinating to me, Solomon, is the amount of turnover under MDA because it wouldn't have floored me. It would have surprised me, but it would not have floored me if they had done something drastic, but I just assumed that if they were going to do something involving more than half of the coaching staff going out, that it would have been just entirely cleaning house. Instead, what they've done is 
they've left the offensive coaches, they've left the head coach, and yet they are completely cleaning house on just one side of the ball. And that is fascinating, especially because with Mike D'Antoni at the moment on just a one-year contract, it makes you wonder just how attractive their current vacancies are if they're truly doing a search. So I'm crazier things have happened as far as the amount of vacancies that they have at the moment. And when you consider how weird this season was, the expectations and not being as close on one level, I'm not surprised. However, I'm definitely surprised that they're in this weird spot now where Mike D'Antoni appears safe and on pretty solid footing yet more than half of his staff is not. Right. So I'm glad you brought up Mike D'Antoni because in the background of all this, Mike D'Antoni's extension negotiations are still going on. This has quickly become the biggest storyline of Houston's offseason. It's it's really hard not to raise an eyebrow at all this and say that these two news items might be related. Now, we have legitimately entered a territory where you agree or disagree. Mike D'Antoni may or may not go into the season as a lame duck coach. And you know, I, I was I was quick to point out that I agree. Like, I, I don't think Mike D'Antoni should be let go. I think he's done a lot of good good in Houston. The, the the team has done consistently a lot of winning. He's a, he's developed an offensive identity for this team that's consistently carried them to success. And I thought that that the relationships he's developed in that locker room were just so important and really hard to forge with a new coach that it it would be a, a tough sell to the players in that locker room, like James, like Chris, like Clint to bring in a new voice like that. And I don't know, like, I just get the sense that the the organization seems to be headed in a different direction. Now, who knows? You know, there's still a plenty of time. The Rockets could get a, a negotiation done in the next two weeks, for all we know. But I just get that sense that there this may be a sign of some change coming. Do you, do you get that same feeling? Yeah, I see really two possibilities and only two that would explain what's happened to this point. One, and this is the the rosier scenario, would be that they have a deal lined up with someone already. You know, you can throw out names. I've seen Tom Thibodeau mentioned, although I certainly have not heard that myself. But the rosy scenario is, hey, the Rockets have a big name lined up to replace Jeff Bezdelic in that so-called defensive coordinator role. And then, of course, if you have a name like that, then he's probably going to want to bring in one or two of his own personnel because he would be controlling that side of the ball. And if you want to be optimistic, you can point to certainly that being a possibility. And also the fact that the Rockets let Irv Roland go. That was the one that really surprised me because of his relationships with Harden, with Chris Paul, with P.J. Tucker, which to me, if you squint hard enough, you could say, hey, would Daryl Morey let Irv Roland go and risk some of the relationships that you know, could go sour with some of their marquee players without having something in mind that obviously the players would support. So that's possibility one, that there's something coming down the pike. We just don't know who it is in terms of filling, you know, the Bestelic role. And then he brings in a couple of his own staffers to kind of fill out that side of the ball. That's the optimistic case. And it's certainly not impossible. The pessimistic case is that the Rockets don't have someone lined up and they just feel that, you know, as we were saying leading off, that they just feel like something has to change from a culture standpoint. They want to try something different because they don't feel that they can just run it back again. And if that is the case, then to me, the next domino that has to fall 
would be the Mike D'Antoni contract. My sense is that in a perfect world, the Rockets would love to have D'Antoni on that one-year deal. I know that he doesn't want it because personal stability, financial stability, all those types of things. But I don't think the Rockets on paper at first glance, when you look at Mike D'Antoni, you know, the reason most coaches don't go into a so-called lame duck year because the franchise is afraid of what if they look around on the open market? Well, Mike D'Antoni is going to be 69 years old next May when his contract is up. There aren't going to be that many fits for him at that stage of his career. It doesn't really make sense for non-contending teams. And even contending teams, number one, there's usually not very many vacancies. And even if there are, there are obviously certain styles that just don't really fit with Mike D'Antoni principles. So I think in a perfect world, the Rockets would love to let the next season play out, see how things work in terms of whatever changes they make in the offseason. And then if it doesn't work out for any reason, then they could cut bait and pivot very easily without having to eat any money at all when it comes to Mike D'Antoni. Where this gets into that second scenario, Salman, is if they are truly trying to hire on the open market, I just don't see, especially because this is the point of the NBA calendar where lots of teams are looking for assistant coaches. I just don't see that the Rockets are that attractive of a job, even though they have a good roster, even though they're a contender, even though there's a lot of prestige, all of that is true. At the same time, if you're an assistant coach that has any options, why would you choose the Houston Rockets if they don't if they make it pretty clear that despite D'Antoni angling for this extension, you know, he's in the media interviews with ESPN, The Athletic, with Fox 26 here in Houston. D'Antoni clearly wants it. He's made this public. And if the Rockets, after all of that, still won't give him the extension, then if you're a potential assistant with options, why would you choose this situation in Houston knowing that a year from now, if D'Antoni's out, then the Rockets may be hiring someone new. And at that point, that coach may want to bring in his own staff and then you're out of a job. So to me, that's what's pushing, unless the Rockets have someone lined up already, and that's possible. But if they don't, one way or another, I think they're going to have to decide on D'Antoni, either give him the extension, and if it doesn't work out, commit to just eating the money later. Or if you really don't trust him, then maybe you have to do something more drastic now. I don't know. But I guess the longer this kind of drags out, the more skeptical I am that they're going to be able to just keep him as a lame duck. Because... In a perfect world, you could do it, but if you're trying to hire half of a coaching staff, unless there's something we don't know in terms of a deal that's already struck, I just don't see how it wouldn't hurt the Rockets from a, a bargaining position. Yeah, that security thing you mentioned is pretty big because that, that seems to be the reason that Roy Rogers left. Um, you know, Fagan reported a couple of days ago that it seems that Roy Rogers left. He mutually departed with the team, and the reason was yeah. he has that same agent, Warren Legary, with Mike D'Antoni, and they're uncertain about Mike D'Antoni's future. So you could definitely see some coaches in the market, especially with a with an with an agent like Warren Legary, who represents a ton of NBA yep. coaches. Like this, this guy, I, I'm not sure if a lot of NBA fans really know who this guy is. He is a real power player in the NBA co- coaching landscape. This guy represents like half the NBA coaches in the NBA. And that a, an agent like that wields a ton of power. And if these negotiations don't go right, like I'm not sure how you can find a replacement for that coaching staff on the open market. Like I, it really does seem like the Rockets at the minimum have to tack on like a couple years here. Yeah, I think so too, because 
as you said, these agents, it's not just one or two clients. It's the trickle-down effect to everything else. And, of course, I'm sure they could get someone, but the bottom line is they would not have their pick of the litter. They would have to go pretty far down the rung. And for a team that's all about winning now, James Harden turns 30 later this summer. I just can't see Gerald Morey thinking that the way to fill out a staff would then be to take whatever leftovers are willing to take that role, knowing that a year from now the entire thing could be flipped over. It just seems pretty clear that one way or another, something is going to have to happen on the D'Antoni front unless, you know, the one caveat, I go back to that optimistic scenario, unless there's a deal already worked out that we're not aware of, and it's certainly not involving uh, any of D'Antoni's agents' clients for the reasons you just laid out. I saw the quote that he gave to Fagan as well about the role of D'Antoni being on a one-year contract and that playing into the mutual decision on Roy Rogers. Unless there's a bombshell regarding, you know, another big-time name that wants to take that Bezdelic role and then has a couple of his own people that are going to come in, unless there's something like that, the next shoe to drop one way or another, they're going to have to do something about D'Antoni because that one-year deal just may not be tenable at this point. What would you do? Like, so it, let's say you're Daryl Morey. You're faced with these ex- these extension negotiations, and you know you have Mike D'Antoni left on a one year deal. Do you extend him? How many years do you give him? If you don't extend him, do you choose to move on at that point, or do you choose to go into the season with one year left on Mike D'Antoni's deal? Boy, I think I would extend him. It's a tough call. The reason it's a tough call, and to be clear, we're assuming that. At this time, Gerald doesn't have the rest of the staff lined up. It's not one of those things that we're just waiting. If they're truly open-ended, I think I would extend him. But the reason I can't say it with 100% certainty is that it depends on how much money that Tillman Fertitta is willing to potentially eat. And that's the big variable that none of us know. Because I think Mike has done enough. And even this season, you know, they started 11-14, and D'Antoni never lost the locker room. Here in Houston, compare this season to what happened in 2015-2016 when they went 41-41. and 41. Through the first 25 games, this looked like it could be a carbon copy. And yet, D'Antoni never lost the locker room. He blended pieces on the fly, Austin Rivers, Daniel House. So even though I understand the defensive concerns, I understand some are worried about the predictability of the offense. I'm not saying those are non-factors. But I think D'Antoni has done enough in his three years in Houston that the chances of having to fire him are small. So I think if I were in Daryl's shoes and and I felt comfortable that in a worst-case scenario, the owner would cut me a little bit of slack, then I would extend him. Because we've seen, look, coaches do get fired in the NBA even when there's guaranteed money. That has not been a huge stumbling block. Now, they typically don't get fired, say, the first year of a five-year deal, and so that's why I might try and do – you know, add on two more years, three at the most. But the reason it's hard to say with any conviction is because I don't know, and honestly, none of us do, exactly what Tillman Fertitta is willing to commit. To me, that's the key variable. And, you know, if he is particularly strict, then that to me is, well, it's the worst case scenario on a number of levels, but if he's particularly strict and stingy with his money, then that's where you get into a really, really murky ground of, okay, if I don't feel like I can fix this later because he's not going to buy out the or or be willing to pay two coaches, then I have to get this right. And at that point, I don't know what he would do. 
But if Tillman Fertitta is comparable to, say, the normal NBA owner, and while he's not going to you know, fire a guy year one into a four- or five-year deal and eat all of that money, if he's willing to, say, you know, eat a couple of years if things go south, then I think I would extend him because D'Antoni's done enough. And I just don't know who you'd bring in that would be a clear upgrade at this point. And with James Harden turning 30, I keep going back to that. Everything about the Rockets right now has to be win now. I think the, the the comparison you made to Dwayne Casey in Toronto is apt. Like the the Raptors were facing a similar situation. They they were kind of moving along and they kept running into this this juggernaut of a Cavaliers team, and they just felt like we have to make a change here. They brought in Nick Nurse. They made that Kawhi Leonard trade, and look, and lo and behold, they're in the NBA Finals right now. So I get the idea. I get the temptation to make changes. I would just. I would just err on the side of caution because I think that infrastructure is pretty solid. I think it's it's really reliable, I, and, I, and you never know what's going to happen in the playoffs. And I also think, and this gets back into some of the personnel decisions too, there's a big theme this offseason for the Rockets, which is how much do you weight the Warriors matchup specifically versus the entirety of an 82-game season and playoff series against teams other than the Warriors potentially. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and measuring how you match up against those other teams, the the Denver's, the Utah's, who you've beaten in five games for two consecutive seasons. And where I get into it, you know, certainly with D'Antoni, we tend to view these things through the lens of, okay, how did these strengths and weaknesses go up against the Warriors? Because any weakness you have, it'll be magnified. However, number one, we don't even know what the situation is going to be with Kevin Durant, Clay Thompson. If they lose Durant, they may be, be playing a very different style a year from now. Also, Steph's going to be 32, Udala 36, Clay and Draymond turning 30. So it remains to be seen exactly what they are a year from now. Certainly not going to fall off the map, but there's enough uncertainty to where, while they're important, I don't know that you can overlook the foundation of everything else that you've done. And that gets back into not just D'Antoni. But also Clint Capella, for example, because I know a lot of the fan base is down on him because of the way he played and the matchup problems when the Warriors go with Draymond at the five. But the flip side is that Capella, of course, he's very valuable over 82 games. He's fairly durable, and he's a big part of why you're such a successful matchup against Denver and Nikola Jokic or against the Jazz. Aside from the couple of games that he was obviously limited by the virus, again, I thought he held up very well against Rudy Gobert. So... I think as far as Clint goes, D'Antoni, the theme that's going to run through this offseason, there are a lot of people in the fan base that are down on these guys because of the Golden State series. But for the Rockets, it's not that simple. The other games do matter. You have to put yourself in a position to get back to the second round or the Western Conference Finals, wherever it may be, to get you another shot against Golden State. So I think, you know, while... Certainly, you have to consider big changes to compete with a team as great as the Warriors. At the same time, it's a very delicate balance for Gerald Morey because it's not a given. You can't take for granted that you're going to win you know, 65 games as you did a year ago. And this year, even though you won 53, you're on a 60-plus win pace for the final 57 games of the season after that bad 11-14 and 14 start. So that's kind of the delicate balance that coaching personnel, they're going to have to you know, walk that fine line all off season between how do you optimize for the Warriors, but also make sure that in optimizing for the Warriors, you don't compromise what makes you and has made you successful against the vast majority of the rest of the NBA. 
I do not envy Daryl Morey at all at this <laughs> offseason. Uh, this is a really tough position to be in. Um, Shams Charani of The Athletic reported this week that Chris Paul and James Arden got into a verbal altercation after they eliminated by the Warriors in Game 6. Now, there's been some speculation as to the veracity of this report. I tend to believe it. Shams is a credible reporter. And, and until the Rockets come out and deny this, it's hard to say that this didn't happen. Apparently, there is some disagreement about Houston style of basketball. You know, they play a lot more isolation this year as they do as they did compared to two years ago. Um, and the lengths of it, the playoffs, is up for debate right now. This is where I stand. On the, I think the Rockets, in their most ideal situation, they would be running pick and roll all day. All day. Like the, mm. that, that's the way they want to play basketball. That's the way they've they played basketball two years ago. That's the way they want Clint Capella in that in that offense. They want him rolling to the basket hard. They want him setting hard screens, and they want James Harden to have that open floor of space. I think the the reason they play isolation basketball is because teams switch so damn much in today's NBA, yep. and it's a counter because. When when teams switch, you can't run that same pick and roll over and over and over again. And isolation basketball has become this efficient counter that the Rockets have managed to to construct over these past couple of years, spacing the floor, gave, giving James Harden all that space, often having a big switch onto him. Where do you stand on this? Because I tend to believe that... So the Rockets have, over the past two years, last year they had the best offense in the NBA... This year, they had the second-best offense in the NBA. And over the past three years, they have three of the top 13 best offenses in NBA history, according to basketball reference. So I tend to believe, if it's not broke, I don't understand the reason towards changing it up too much. But I, it seems Chris Paul believes the team needs to move faster. They need they need more ball movement. They, more, they need more player movement. Where do you stand on things? So, two things. First, I definitely believe the Shams report I just don't think it's that big of a deal. If you go back to the playoff run a year ago, game three in Utah, they had an altercation on the bench, Harden and James, where Harden or Paul was getting in Harden's face and James kind of slapped his hand away. That happens between competitors and what happened after that incident a year ago. They won the last three games of the Jazz Series and they won three of the first five against Golden State before, of course, CP's hamstring went out at the worst time. So I buy the story. I just don't think it's a huge deal in the grand scheme. They're competitors and if they lose to the team, if they've been focused on beating all season long, that's been their entire focus, then of course there's going to be some frustrations that come out. So I believe the report. I just don't see it as that big of a deal in the grand, in the grand scheme, the fact that you know they had some words on the court and in the locker room according to the story. Now, as far as stylistically, what's funny, I think Chris is right, but he's right for the wrong reason. I do agree that they probably need to pick up the pace a little bit and in the sham story it's framed as though the slow pace is specifically to reward and play to the strengths of james harden i actually don't believe that to be the case now i think that's a byproduct i think harden is clearly you know one of the most gifted offensive players the game has ever seen and he's capable of thriving a number of different ways but if you go back to mike d'antoni's first season in houston the Rockets did play faster back then. That 2016-2017 team, they were one of the fastest-paced teams in the league. They weren't seven seconds or less, but they were definitely upper half. And then to start the first, uh, to start the next year, the first of Chris Paul, they were pretty fast-paced then as well. And then it, they really didn't get to this slow, grinded-out style 
until about midway through last season, and then it continued in to this year. Well, what's the big difference? It's the continued integration of Chris Paul, who, by the way, when they started last season at a quicker pace, what happened? Chris Paul missed the first 15 games or 15 of the first 16 with a knee injury that he suffered in the preseason. So in my opinion, the slowdown in pace in large part has been done by the Rockets to try and preserve the body of a now 34-year-old Chris Paul because they don't know how he's going to hold up if they go faster. And the reason that I think they may have no choice but to trust it is because the slower style, I think it was fine a season ago when you had a peak isolation version of Chris Paul. You had two dominant creators in both James and Chris on the floor. And so even if you box yourself in a little bit with regards to the shot clock, anything else going on, then it was offset by the fact that you still, on any possession, you had two guys that were capable of breaking down the defense and making something happen. This postseason, that wasn't the case, other than game six. That was the one outlier. Chris Paul was really great in terms of one-on-one creation in that game. Other than that, he was not good enough. And if you were depending on James Harden as your only consistent creator, then, yeah, you may need to pick up the pace and try and get some more transition opportunities so that you don't box yourself in late in the clock with Harden as your only release valve. So, long story short, I think Chris is right. However, I don't think that it's about taking the ball out of Harden's hands because especially with Chris turning 34, I find it hard to believe that he's capable of taking on that much more workload himself. Instead, I think maybe playing at a faster pace with more ball movement, I think that's something the Rockets should consider. But the real reason for that is that I just don't think that Chris Paul at 34, it's reasonable to expect him to be the same type of creator that he was last postseason. I think this year, you know, so much of the formula for the Rockets, Solomon, we've said this throughout this podcast, run it back. Everything has been about this past season recapturing what they did a year ago. And even in the regular season when they struggled, you know, we heard back in December when they were at their lowest point, Chris Paul, I don't think anyone can beat us four times out of seven. That team firmly believed that no matter what happened during the season, they were going to be able to flip the switch when it mattered. And based on how close they were a year ago, I believe it was the best team in franchise history. I think Gerald Morey had to give them that opportunity. And the same goes for Mike D'Antoni. They played largely the same way. And, of course, they had to to integrate some new pieces, Rivers, House, Shumpert, those types over the season. But I just think philosophically there wasn't that much change. There was just let's get to the postseason and let's let the chips fall as they may. And this coming season, it's not going to be like that because, as we said leading off, it was clear the Rockets were not good enough. So, in my opinion, this is when the Rockets have to take a hard look in the mirror. And I I think – the isolation, you're exactly right. It's a byproduct of the fact that they want to run pick and rolls, but defenses are going to switch. That said, you can push the tempo a little bit. And to me, it's not that James Harden is the problem in terms of his isolations. No, instead, I, I think that pushing the pace and getting more movement, that may be the key to playing to Chris Paul's strengths at 34 years old and not asking a 34-year-old Chris Paul to do what he could a couple of years ago. Because to me, throughout the playoffs, other than game six, that was the biggest problem that the Rockets had. And as they go into next season and beyond, they've got to figure out how they can best optimize a mid-30s Chris Paul and not the guy he was when he first got to Houston. 
Yeah, I tend to agree that I think the Rockets are fine offensively. Yeah, now in the playoffs they did they did take a step back. They were they had a one ten offensive rating, good for sixth in the playoffs. In the regular season they had they had the second best offensive rating in the league, and it was one fourteen point eight. So they did they did take a small step back. But what's important to note here is they played the Utah Jazz, which is the second best defense in the NBA, and the Golden State Warriors, who. Yep. Oh my God! The Warriors this postseason have been on another level defensively. Draymond Green, specifically, has been just so sensational in the way he's able to just disrupt everything. He completely took out Clint Capella from from Houston's offense. Like you used to be able to pencil in ten to fifteen points per game for Clint Capella lobs, and the Warriors, Draymond Green specifically, just took that away from the Rockets. Like, no, you're not yep. getting that anymore, and. That that I think is another reason Houston stagnated. They played such great defensive talent like Rudy Gobert, like Ricky Rubio, like Jay Crowder, like Draymond Green, like Andre Iguodala, who also seemed to turn the, the the clock back in this series. Like they played awesome defenses, and they still managed to put up a damn good offensive rating. One ten is really really good. Like I, I don't know how much more you could be asking of the Rockets and. The point you brought up about Chris Paul is valid. Uh, this year, uh, he averaged 0.77 points per possession in isolation in this year's playoffs. Last year, he averaged 1.17, which is ridiculous. Like, 1.17 yeah. is a ridiculous point per possession for an isolation play. And James Harden was right there with them. He was like 1.23 or something like that. And that's the big difference from last year. Last year, the Rockets had two all-time offensive isolation players and this year they only had one to work with and like half of Eric Gordon because Eric Gordon was really good in this year's playoffs so I think that's a big difference but I think philosophically I, I think the Rockets are fine like that like if it's not broken I don't understand the idea of making significant changes to this offense especially because I think as James Harden gets older he's going to want to play at a slower pace and in the playoffs the the playoffs is generally played at a, at a slower pace, so when you isolate a lot in the post in the regular season, I think you're preparing yourself for postseason situations. Like when teams switch like crazy in the postseason, like you're going to be better prepared by practicing it in the regular season. Like I firmly believe that. Yeah, and it's important to note that they're going to have to fight this temptation to overcorrect, and I'm sure some of this is the frustration talking. Because, yeah, as you mentioned, the defenses they play in the postseason, the last two years, four of their five series have been against the Jazz with Gobert and the Warriors. Those are the elite of the elite. Even by playoff standards, those are really, really good. The one easy series, you know, Minnesota a year ago, they still had Jimmy Butler. And heck, you can go back before then. That's why some of the hardened playoff critiques are really overdone. You know, they had the Spurs with Pop, Kawhi, and Simmons. You had the Thunder with Roberson and Steven Adams in the middle. Before that, you had the 73-win Warriors. You can go on and on. So the Rockets in the playoffs, they've had a run of really, really good defenses. And sometimes it's important to know when to tip your hat. And so I think, you know, you hit on a key theme that's going to be important for, you know, not just the players, because certainly some of this, I think, is leaked from the Chris Paul camp. There's some frustration, but also, you know, the coaching, the GM level, really all throughout the franchise there's going to be this common theme of, okay, what do we actually need to fix and what is completely fine and just the Warriors are really good. And of course, it's a fine line because 
of course, your challenge is to beat the Warriors, and the bar is phenomenally high. I understand that. But you can go too far and all of a sudden take away an existing strength and the reason that you're even close to them in the first place. The reason that you had to push to the brink of elimination a year ago and this season you took two games and everyone was there for the taking in the fourth quarter. All of them decided by six points or less. So you definitely need to make changes. I get that. However, I do think there's a temptation to overcorrect that you're going to have to fight those instincts too. Because I think, you know, you keep losing to the same team and everyone is frustrated. They're exasperated. They're looking for anything that can potentially get them out of this rut. But at the same time, you have to tread very carefully because, yeah, you don't want to overcorrect and all of a sudden take away one of the strengths of this team, which by and large, the last few years has been really, really good. It just hasn't been the Golden State Warriors. Right. And Chris Paul, since the playoffs ended, has taken a beating over his contract, uh, his play last season. And um, I, I think it's it's important to note that he did take a, a pretty significant step back. I just think we need to slow down with all the Chris Paul trade talks. Like, I, I, under, I can acknowledge that he's Chris Paul last year was just not the same Chris Paul he was the prior year. I can acknowledge that. I can acknowledge that two years ago he was one of the ten best players in the NBA. And I can acknowledge that the Rockets are in a precarious situation in regards to his contract over the next few years. What I what I what I, I just firmly disagree with is this idea that you're going to trade Chris Paul and find value that will help you win a championship next season. Because a, it's highly unlikely that you're going to find a buyer for Chris Paul. Like that, that that's yep. that's the most important thing. You're it's you're not going to find someone who's going to take on Chris Paul's deal at this point in his career. And B, if you do manage to get a deal done, it's unlikely that you get a deal done that increases your championship odds next season. Like Chris Paul by himself is better than the than most of the realistic packages you can get back in a trade. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. My biggest pet peeve is this notion, and I think it comes from you know sports talk radio people who maybe for, focus first on the Texans or the Astros or what have you that don't really understand the NBA salary cap. You can't just take the $35 million that Chris Paul is owed and then all of a sudden, if he didn't exist tomorrow, give it to someone else. That's what a lot of people don't understand. It's not like you could just reallocate that money. Even if the Rockets did have a taker for him, unless someone was literally going to take him into cap space, which is obviously not going to happen because, of course, there are guys like Kevin Durant, Jimmy Butler, Kawhi Leonard, all these top shelf free agents that are going to be available in July – Unless someone is willing to take the contract in its entirety, then you'd be shedding just a portion of it. And guess what? The Rockets are well over the salary cap as is. So actually, let me back up. Even if the Rockets were to offload the entire Chris Paul contract magically, if you could just say poof, and it's gone, then I think they would probably have somewhere between, once you factor in cap holds, 10 and $15 million in cap space. And they wouldn't have the mid-level exception, which is close to $6 million a year. So you'd be looking at less than $10 million of an increase in terms of your available resources if Chris Paul didn't exist. That's what I think a lot of people don't get. He was re-signed with bird rights. The team was and is over the cap. And as far as the hypotheticals, number one, even getting to say $10 or $15 million under the cap, it's not reasonable because no team that has $35 million in cap space that could afford Chris Paul – 
is just going to take him because any team with that much cap space would prefer to try for the, you know, the Durants, the Kawhis, everyone at that tier. Realistically, the only ways that you could trade Chris Paul would be for, say, lesser bad contracts, guys that are expiring in 2020 or 2021 instead of 2022. But the reality is that you are going, if you do those trades, to take a back seat on the basketball floor. You are going to be getting lesser players. And with James Harden turning 30, the Rockets are not worried about the offseason of 2021. And, oh boy, how, how can we have cap space then? No, James Harden is about to turn 30. You realistically have two to three years left at the most of this superhuman version of James Harden. They are focused on maximizing that. So there's just no realistic way that you can offload Chris Paul and boost your chances next season. Now, you can, you know, you could conceivably offload him and get a little bit of relief towards the end of the contract. But the Rockets, we have known this. This is not breaking news. Everything is about the here and now, specifically because of James Harden's age. They are tilted heavily, their bias, towards the short term. So they are more than willing to take any pain on the back end for an extra year or two of Chris Paul's contract if it means they have a better shot this coming season. That's just the way it is. That's been the emphasis. So I don't see any reason to ponder Chris Paul trades because, number one, even the ideal scenario, I don't see how you could offload him altogether. And it doesn't even get you that much cap room if you did. So I just see the best way forward. You focus on Chris Paul as a part of the team. And the only thing you can second guess on Chris Paul is the decision way back in June 2017 to cash in your chips, you know, the draft picks, Beverly, Lou Williams, Montrezl Harrell, that package. Maybe you could have gone after Paul George a little bit younger with the Pacers, although I'm not sure the Pacers would have done that deal because they got Oladipo and Sabonis. That's, in hindsight, a pretty good haul for them. Maybe there's somebody else on the market. But that's the only time that you can really go back and question. And I have a tough time questioning it because since then, the past two seasons for the Rockets have been tremendous. And, you know, Chris Paul's the only reason why they were a hamstring away, a game away, a season ago. So to me, considering the assets, considering the salary cap positioning, the fact that the only reason you did re-sign him last summer was with bird rights, it's pointless when you consider how the NBA salary cap works to really go down that road. Once the Rockets made that trade in June of 2017, they hitched their lot to Chris Paul. It is what it is. We'll see how he ages. I hope that you know they can find a system that plays a little bit more to his strengths as they evolve, slightly less of a dominant isolation player this year. But I'm 100% with you. There's no point in really going down the road of hypothetical trade packages. It's, it's not going to make sense for most other teams. And if it does make sense for other teams in terms of the types of guys they would give up to take a risk on a 34-year-old Chris Paul, then it's not going to make sense for the Rockets, who are trying to maximize their odds of winning a title in 2020 with a then 30-year-old James Harden. Yeah, there, there just seems to be a lot of dread on Rockets Twitter. Like, there, there just seems to be a lot of, woe is me. Like, the, the Rockets need to trade Clint Capella. They need to trade Chris Paul. They need to rebuild. They need, they need to rethink the way they do things. And I'm just like, guys, like, 99% of the time, you're not going to win a championship. That's just the way things go. Like, 29 teams every year don't win a championship. And this Warriors team is going to prevent a lot of really good teams from ever re- winning a championship. That's just the way these dynasties work. Like, if you go back to the Jordan years, you you look at those teams in the Eastern Conference that the Bulls left in their wake. Like, those are some really, really good basketball teams. And Yeah, or if you look at those late 90s Sonics and Jazz teams. 
Right, yeah, like a bunch of teams in the Western Conference as well. Like, like that, that's just what the nature of a team like Golden State does to teams in, in their path. Like, they just prevent teams from ever winning a championship. It's unfortunate, but that's just the way it is. Now, am I saying the Rockets will never win a championship? No, I, I think what the right now, their core is pretty damn good. It'll, it's a formula that'll get you 55 to, to 60 wins every year. It's a formula that'll probably get you the second round every year, possibly the conference finals. And if things go your way, you know, maybe you're the Raptors and you're in the NBA finals for the first time in, well, in the Raptors case, franchise history, in the Rockets case, 20 years, right? Like, like, I, like I just think there needs to be a little bit more patience here with what the Rockets are doing because you never know. You, it, that 2011 championship that the Mavericks won, that that's that's the case. That that right there is the case for keeping things together, for being patient, letting let waiting for things to break your way. Don't f- try and fix things that aren't broken, and see what happens. And so many thought that 2011 Mavs team was past its prime. You know, this was a, that was a case of the consensus logic on the Mavs going into that season was that you know their best chances were in the mid to late 2000s. And that's where I think a lot of people are going with the Rockets wondering, you know, oh, they've been so close these last few years. What's going to happen with the aging curve? And then you never know. The stars might align one year. And as evidenced by what's happened with the Mavs since then, you know, there's value in keeping a contender together and seeing if one year the stars align. Yeah, I I think we agree on the main theme, which is that, you know, it's certainly not to say that you shouldn't desire a championship. I mean, I get it. That's what Daryl Morey and Mike D'Antoni are consumed by. But where I think a lot of fans go wrong, you know, they'll hear these quotes from Maury, from D'Antoni, from Harden, whoever it may be, about how it's all about winning a title. And that's true. That's, you know, that's their focus. And, you know, I'm sure none of them are satisfied by this season. They'll say that they fell short of their goals. And that's true. However, in terms of predictive value, you have to be able to draw a line between, you know, what your goal is and then also being able to understand that sometimes your goal is unrealistic. Because only one team can be the best. And in this case, the bar is historically high because of the Warriors. So you've got to be able, even though the title is the goal, in terms of what you do to try and fix the team in the offseason to get yourself a better percentage shot next year, you have to t- take a step back. And that's where I think a lot of fans go wrong. They look at this and you know they're focused on winning a title. They've heard everyone affiliated with the team saying it all season long. And then if it doesn't happen then, you know, you know, let's yell, let's throw things and let's make changes for the sake of making changes. And that can sometimes be a mistake. And, you know, the Mavs example is a perfect illustration of what can happen if you buy time, you build some continuity with the core and one year the stars can align. And I agree, that's the hope for the Rockets at this point. Uh, As far as Houston having a dynasty, you know, that's pretty difficult given the ages. At this point, you're looking for one or two years where you get the breaks. Toronto this year is another example of that. But yeah, I think we're on the same wavelength that you have to be able to draw that line between, okay, we didn't accomplish our goals, but also understanding that in this case, the goal, while admirable, it doesn't mean like something is horribly wrong with your team because they didn't accomplish it. And that's why I think the Rockets have to have at least some patience going into this. Yeah, and to be clear, I don't think either of us is is advocating for no change whatsoever, right? Right. It's obvious that the Rockets are going to make change. They have they've already started to make changes within the organization and and with the roster. Like they're they're 
there there are some problems with this team that can be fixed. Like I thought the biggest problem for the Rockets all year was they were just allowing way too many offensive rebounds and they clearly need to get better at defensive rebounding. That's that's one yep. of the big reasons they lost that Warriors series is because they just got absolutely murdered on the glass by Kevon Looney. Like like these are changes that you can you can point to and say we can correct this. This is something we can fix in the offseason. And by no by by no means am I saying that the Rockets should just stand pat. Like the, the there are changes that the Rockets can look at and say, yeah, yes, we can fix X, Y, and Z and improve as a team. Because the Rockets are going to do that. Like the Rockets are going to try their mighty best and try to get this championship. And I I don't think there's any there's anything wrong in suggesting that the main pieces in place are not are not flawed. Yeah, I think I'm with you on that. I mean, you can quibble over matchups here or there. You know, Capella, it's less about Clint and it's more, you know, these days I just wonder what exactly is the role of a center in the modern NBA. I'm certainly not thrusting Isaiah Hartenstein into a 30 minutes per game role, but part of me is curious about, you know, hey, in the James Harden era in the 30s, is it possible that Hartenstein could evolve into, you know, a quintessential NBA role player as a big and be the kind of stretch? Maybe. Of course, it's a long way to go. He hasn't even played rotation minutes other than just a small handful at the beginning of this season. That's just one example. But, you know, that's the only one I would push back on. Capella a little bit, and that's less about him. It's more about the trends of the NBA. But generally, yes, the foundation, you're doing something right if you can roll out, and even after 11-14 and 14 start, still get to around the 55 wins here, top four in the West. And really, the Rockets were that Paul George miracle from being the number two seed in the West, despite everything that went wrong. And, you know, I go back, you look at that start, which was just the crazy combination of circumstances, that 11 and 14. Obviously, Carmelo Anthony, that experiment did not work out. You had a bit of a hangover. You had the Chris Paul suspension. You had injuries to several players, including James Harden, with the hamstring early in the season. If you start 15 and 10 instead of 11 and 14, and that's well below their pace for the rest of the year, if you start 15 and 10, Solomon, the Rockets finish with the same record as the Warriors and they have the tiebreaker. So they're the number one seed in the Western Conference. And of course, we don't know how things happen at that point. You know, do the Warriors take a couple more games because they feel threatened? I don't know. I'm sure you could argue that. But the point is, despite everything going wrong, the fact that this team still won in the mid 50s, upper four in the West, they were the Paul George miracle from being the number two seed, despite really 25 games over a quarter into the season going as poorly as it did, you can't take that stuff for granted. So, yeah, as you are talking about how to fix the team, I understand that, you know, you do want to dare to be great and you have to take some risk to compete with the Warriors. However, it comes back to that same thing that we've been saying over the past few minutes, which is that you can't take for granted the foundation that gives you this much success every year and puts you in the conversation no matter what, assuming health. That, to me, is the balance that Gerald Morey is going to have to find. Yeah, and the point you brought up is, is pretty valid. I mean, if this playoffs has taught us anything, is that home court advantage still matters. Like, the only two games the Rockets took off the Warriors were at home. That's significant. If the Rockets had home court advantage in that series, you don't know where things go. And I, th- I think that's pretty significant. Like, th- that's something the Rockets will keep in mind going into next year. Like, if you get the number one seed in the West and you play the Warriors on your home floor, like... God knows what ha- what can happen. Like you don't know. You you don't know if a ball tips your way at home more likely than on the road. And I I think I think that's 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 a pretty significant point that you brought up. Where can we find you on Twitter, Ben? And where where can we listen to your podcast? 
Yeah, at Benjubos on Twitter, at Lockdown Rockets. And last point I'll throw out there, you hit the nail on the head as far as home court. You noticed that Harden said it after game six. That was one of the things that came up in just the five or ten minutes they spoke to the media then. That means a lot. And I'm so tired of hearing you know, the complaints that, well, home court, it doesn't matter because they lost game six. Okay, but as you said, they won the other two. It's a big deal. The Rockets are not going to magically be a more talented roster than the Warriors. They have to chip away at the margins however they can. And I think, you know, over a seven-game series, what's really helpful is if you have those first two games at home, hopefully you're not down 0-2 like you are this year or or were this year. Hopefully, you know, either 2-0 in a perfect world or last year it was 1-1. But when you fall down 0-2, as the Rockets did after those two games in Oakland, just so many things have to go right to win four out of five. So it's a big variable, and I'm tired of hearing people say that, well, just because they lost game six somehow proves that it's irrelevant. No, it's something to fight for, and Harden said it after the series. We've heard it from Dan Tony, so I think you're exactly right there. But anyway, uh, Solomon, thanks so much for having me. And yeah, Ben Dubose on Twitter, Locked on Rockets on Twitter, and you can search for Locked on Rockets at any of your platform providers for podcasts, and you can find the show that way as well. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Give us five-star rating on iTunes because it really helps you find the show. And yeah, guys, good night.